0: The year is 1967, 13-year-old Peter Gorman was tucked in bed in his pajamas on a quiet October night. A fluorescent light pierced through his curtains, luring him to the window. The light slid into place and hovered above the tree line. It was too bright to be a spotlight, too silent to be a helicopter, and too bewildering to ever forget. There was no reason for the light to be there. What would happen on that cool autumn evening in October 1967 would later be dubbed Canada's Roswell and one of the most iconic cases of a USO in ufology. Stay tuned as I will cover this case that involves sightings both above and below the waves, secret US military bases, and Russian submarines at the height of the Cold War to add to the plot that sounds like it's straight out of Hollywood. Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT and each week I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well good afternoon everyone. I hope you're well wherever you are in the world. I hope you've had a great couple of weeks while I've had a bit of a hiatus for the end of the first season of the paranormal sun. Spring has sprung here. We've still got a lot of rainy days, but it's been a lovely sunny day today. It's been great. I've been able to get a lot of things done. And I truly hope that wherever you are, you've enjoyed yourself. I hope that uh, my listeners in the U.S. enjoyed Labor Day. And I really hope that you got to spend time with your loved ones with your friends and family and all those that you care about. So first and foremost, I just wanted to give you a little bit of an update about William. So for those of you who may be new to the show, uh, my dachshund William, he's uh, like a son to us, he means the world to us, and he had to have pretty severe spinal surgery about uh, six weeks, two months ago. Now I'm pleased to tell you that William has had his surgical uh, consult, you know, follow-up and uh, the surgeon was very happy. She said that he's ahead of schedule. So he's still not up and walking around. He is starting to put a little bit of weight on his back legs and he is trying. He's stubborn, he's, uh, he's a fighter, he's not one to give up. So it's been really good. And that's been one thing that's been really awesome, really positive for me. It's been great because, uh, you know, he means the world to me. And it's really been good to see him start to become, you know, back to his, his, his old self. So he still can't walk, but I'm hoping that within the next few weeks or a month or so, he'll get back to normal. So again, thanks so much for everyone who keeps checking up on on, uh, William, and thank you so much for the love and support. Now, first and foremost, I'd like to give my traditional shout-outs to everyone listening to my voice. Thank you so much for listening to the program. Thank you for reaching out to me, for getting in touch with me, for having kind words about the program, and the topics that I cover, again, thank you so much. It really means the world to me. To Eddie in California and his family, thanks Eddie. Thanks so much for your support. To Chris and Max in Illinois, thank you as always. To Adriana and Nico in Texas, thank you so much for your support. Of course, Harry and Lisa in North Carolina, I couldn't do it without you, thank you so much. To my Chicagoland listeners, thank you again so much for continuing to listen and follow the program. Course, to my listeners in France, to my Montana family, to the Fidianga tribe, and to the listeners from the asylum, thanks so much. I hope that you enjoy the topics that I cover, and I hope that you enjoy the shows. And to everyone else hearing my voice, thank you so much again. I really appreciate it, and I thank you so much for listening to the, the content. If you'd like to suggest anything or if you've got any questions about the show, you can, of course, reach out to me. You can email me at theparanormalsun at gmail.com. You can go to www.theparanormalsun.com, which is the website for both the Paranormal Sun and the Fortunate Sun. You can reach me there. You can reach out to me in the Facebook group. I've got a Paranormal Sun Facebook page. I've got a Paranormal Sun Instagram, which I haven't been all that great about uh, updating. So, yeah, sorry about that, folks, but uh, I do do my best. And, of course, if you feel like you would like to support the show, you can uh, like, subscribe, you know, anywhere where you listen to the podcast. You can give it a good rating. I do have a Patreon account for the show, so if you'd like to support a bit more, you can go there. You can join one of the tiers, or you can just go to theparanormalsun.com, and I've got a PayPal account there. You know, you can send through a dollar, $5, $10, whatever you may feel you'd like to donate. If not, I fully understand. I know it's been a tough year for nearly everyone. And for those of you that are winning this year and have had successful years, hey, my hat's off to you because it's been a very difficult year. Now, I've got a couple of separate uh, updates here I'd just like to give you really quickly. First and foremost, just again, thank you so much uh, to the lovely ladies over at the Quite Unusual podcast. Thank you so much for supporting me. Thank you for Reaching out, checking up on William. I know it's been quite difficult for you in Chicago. Uh, hang in there. You know, you continue to put out programs that people really enjoy. Uh, chief amongst those, me, you know, I'm sure that you've got a more devoted listener or two out there, but I definitely enjoy listening to what you put out. And thank you so much for the kind words. Now, to Scott, Matt, and Dave at the old 77, uh, thanks. You know, thank you so much, guys. Uh, I've got a bit of an exclusive to break here for you folks. So Scott and Dave and Matt uh, interviewed me to be on the Old 77 podcast, you know, just general questions about the paranormal sun, some of the things that I like, uh, some of the topics that I cover on this program, and some that I haven't covered over yet. So when that episode comes out, which I believe will be next week, so I'm recording this on the 8th of September. So around the 15th or 16th, I believe it will be out. And when it's out, I'll have a link to it. I'll make sure to promote the heck out of it. And again, thanks, guys. I'm really humbled to be a guest on your brilliant podcast. Thank you so much for reaching out and getting in touch with me. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed doing the interview, and I hope that you enjoyed having me on as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. So, again, thanks, guys. Now, having a couple weeks off to, you know, really – rest and recuperate and recharge my batteries a bit. You know, I've, I've got to spend some time just doing things that, you know, I, I haven't had much of a chance to do lately. So, you know, I spent a good bit of time doing some gaming on the PS4 and elsewhere. That's been quite good. Caught up on some programs. Uh, it's also been quite handy to take that extra time off because Vi's been working night shifts and that's generally when I do my recording, so it's been quite good to just have a little bit of time uh, because I have to spend the time with William as I say he does not cope well with being left alone, so um, you know William has definitely got separation anxiety and if I bring him out here in the studio and I record you'll hear him barking or whining. If I leave him in the house he'll be barking and whining and driving everyone crazy, so I have to try and record things in between so again, just thanks so much for the understanding and support, and I'll do my best to you know keep you updated as we go. Uh, I do plan to try and get an episode out every week. We'll see how that goes. I'm doing my best to try and get back on a schedule with it. Now, for those of you who may be new listeners to the program, each week I cover a segment called The News of the Damned. Uh, the News of the Damned is an homage to Charles Fort, who's one of my real uh, inspirations in the field of the paranormal, the unexplained, and all such things that I cover on this program. Charles Fort was one of the first people that actually took the time to correlate and uh, group together a lot of these stories that are, you know, 100, 200 years old, put them in published works, and put them out there for people to consume. Now, Charles Fort uh, called any data that was excluded by science, that was ignored, that was shunned by the scientific community, Damned Data. Therefore, I always title this segment, The News of the Damned. Now, generally, I try to have three. Tonight, I've got four. So I've got three that I've gathered from coast.com and I've got a fourth that many of you would have heard of, but it was sent to me very early on in the case happening from Harry in North Carolina. So thank you so much, Harry, for sending it along. Now, without any further ado, The first article of the News of the Damned here is, as I say, the the first three here will be from coasttocoastam.com, and this one is titled Watch, Shadow Creature Filmed in Maine. So yes, there is a video here, folks, and I would encourage you to have a real quick look at it. It's not one of those 20-minute videos where at the end they show you a fleeting glimpse. It's basically a car driving down the road and then them filming this creature. And it is quite intriguing to me. It almost looks like a dark cloud blowing across the road. I don't see any eyes in it. Now I could be wrong. So what I'm saying is I don't think it was a dog that ran across the road or a cat, something like that. Now this was uh, published on September the 3rd of 2020. And it's by Tim Bernal, who is the you know kind of website guru, the website manager over at coast2coast.com. So it says, a curious piece of dashcam footage from a motorist in Maine, appears to show some kind of shadow creature dart across a road. The eerie video was posted on Wednesday afternoon by the Facebook group 207 Paranormal, which specializes in reporting accounts of high strangeness in Maine. According to them, the footage was captured in the town of Falmouth a few days ago, and that the anomaly was only noticed by the driver when he later revisited the video from their drive in the hopes of seeing a deer that had been spotted earlier in the trip. In the video, as the car travels down a dark road, illuminated by only the headlights of the vehicle, and Toto's classic tune Love is a Noise on Time playing on the radio, a dark oddity that appears to be some kind of creature suddenly and quickly zips from one side of the road to the other and disappears into the darkness. The strange incident lasts only a few seconds, so it's understandable how the driver may have missed the sighting when it unfolded before their very eyes. As to what the anomaly may have been, the most popular possibility put forward by paranormal enthusiasts and those who love a good spooky video is that it could be ghostly in nature, perhaps the spirit of an animal. More skeptical viewers will undoubtedly argue that the creature is a genuine animal that only looks supernatural due to a trick of light and shadow, as it appears right where the illumination of the headlights meets the darkness of the road. Where do you stand on the footage? So again, folks, there's a, there's a the video is actually embedded in the link. And as always, I'll have the links in the show notes to all four of the news of the dam segments. But again, this is quite a, quite an interesting one, and I really like this because it's you know it's quite short and sharp. So I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes. And again, you know, I encourage you to go over there, check it out, and let me know what you think. Now the second one here is a bit of comic relief, but um, I say that with tongue in cheek. So the reason I say that is. I respect anyone's opinion. Um, It's very difficult for me or anyone else in my opinion to argue that my cryptid exists or my conspiracy theory exists, but yours is completely daft. Um, So I try to take everything with a grain of salt, and I try to give anyone the benefit of the doubt as long as they're respectful to me. Now, uh, the flat earth is something that I personally struggle to believe. There are reasons behind that, which I don't want to get in in depth on the program about tonight. And again, I'm not attacking anyone. If you believe in the flat earth, hey, more power to you. If I see some real proof, um, then, you know, again, uh, I always leave these things open. I always leave my mind open to judgments. So this article is titled, Italian Flat Earthers Journey to the Edge of the World Goes Wildly Awry. And this is from September 1st, 2020, and again from coasttocoastam.com. An Italian couple who believe that the earth is flat wound up on a wild misadventure after they decided to put the theory to the test by embarking on a journey to what they suspect is the edge of the world. The incredibly strange saga reportedly unfolded back in April, but was only revealed to the Italian media by authorities this week. It began when the pair broke the country's then-stringent coronavirus travel restrictions and set off in their car towards the coast of Sicily. Amazingly, when they reached the seaside town of termini Emersi, the pair sold their car, purchased a boat, and set sail for the island of Lampedusa, which, for reasons unexplained, they believed to be the edge of the flat earth. Either due to a lack of nautical navigation skills or an ill-conceived travel plan, they ultimately arrived at the island of Ustica, which is located north of Sicily and approximately 225 miles in the opposite direction of where they wanted to go. According to officials on the island, the two weary travelers were found tired, thirsty, and risking shipwreck. A doctor who attended to the duo understandably found some amusement in their predicament, noting that the funny thing is that they oriented themselves with a compass, an instrument that works on the basis of terrestrial magnetism, a principle that they, as flat earthers, should refuse. The pair were then taken by escort to the Sicilian capital of Palermo, where they were told to remain in their boat under quarantine for 15 days. It would seem, however, that their quest to find the edge of the world would not be denied as, incredibly, the couple defied the order and took to the sea once again. This trip did not last as long as their previous excursion, as they were intercepted by a harbor master after only three hours. And in what must have been a maddening experience for local officials, the pair actually attempted yet another failed escape after that, which led to the Flat Earthers ultimately throwing in the towel on their trip and going home. Now, folks, um, I, again, just because I personally struggle to wrap my mind around Flat Earth doesn't mean that I'm not open to listening to the evidence and what people think. Now, this is the first case that I personally have heard of anyone thinking that the edge of the flat Earth is somewhere in the Mediterranean. Almost everyone says it's at the poles uh, and that Antarctica is actually a, you know, ice wall um, and that it basically blocks us off from the rest of the planet. Anyway, it's quite interesting and I, I actually do tip my cap to these people that in the search of knowledge, you know, and what they believe to be true... They've, you know, gone out of their way, even in a lockdown quarantine type situation, to, you know, go out there and pursue research of, you know, what they believe. So, hey, you know, uh, Flat Earth isn't for everyone, but I definitely admire their tenacity. I realize that um, that's a bit of a double-edged sword with a pandemic, people sick, everything else. But, um, you know, the fact that uh, they would go that far for their Uh, devotion to this theory, hey, you know, um, you know, I really respect that. I can't say that I've ever packed up and headed many places really to research a lot of stuff. Most of the things that I do have either been through books or media or online. So um, yeah, you know, interesting one nonetheless. And again, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. So the last one here from Coast to Coast AM is titled Newfound Tasmanian Tiger Pelt Provides Fresh Insights on Extinct Creatures' Fur. Now, something, folks, that I haven't covered over as much as I would like to yet on the program, and again, it's just from the massive amount of subject matter that I've got, the amount of shows. I mean, I've done 20 programs, and I have barely touched the surface of a lot of these things. So, um, you know, again, bear with me as I work my way through it. So, you know, the Tasmanian tiger is one of these cryptids that is a known creature that did exist, but, you know, it is considered to be extinct by science, and yet there are people who believe that it still exists. It's also known as the thylacine, if you've ever heard of that. Um, My friends over at um, Expanded Perspectives, that's one of their favorite subjects is the thylacine in Tasmania. Now, this was published on September the 2nd, 2020 and again by tim banal and this says an extremely rare pelt from a tasmanian tiger that was only recently discovered a few years ago has provided scientists with new insights into the extinct creature the existence of the remarkably well-preserved thylacine skin first came to light in 2017 when a researcher spotted it at a taxidermy shop wow look folks for those of you who don't know a lot about this this would be like um You know, for those of you that have heard of it, you know, you go into a secondhand shop and you find a copy of the Declaration of Independence that's worth, you know, a million dollars or something. And, you know, it's there uh, in a frame for 10 bucks or you find a really rare baseball card or something like that. Um, That's kind of the equivalent of this, Uh, not from the not from the value perspective, um, but more from just the what are the odds of you finding it in a taxidermy shop? So it says, recognizing the significance of the find, the National Museum of Australia eventually acquired the pelt last year for the princely sum of approximately 180,000 American dollars. Now safely in the hands of researchers at the museum, the long-lost Tasmanian tiger skin has reportedly begun to give up its secrets. What makes the pelt of particular interest to scientists is that it has been sitting in a drawer for decades which kept it from being exposed to the elements. Conservator David Thorogood marveled at how, unlike other thylacine skins found in museums, the fur of the piece is quite vivid and not faded at all. The rich chocolate browns on the stripes and honey colors, down to really beautiful grays on the underside of the animal, he observed, indicate how beautifully it, how beautiful it would have been. On a scientific level, Thorogood was able to do an extensive examination of that fur and determined that the Tasmanian tiger possesses eight different types of hair. Perhaps the most enlightening aspect of that analysis was that one type of hair found on the creature was actually hollow. Thorogood likened that unique fur to that of species who live in the cold and use those fine pockets of air to keep themselves warm and be well adapted to the Tasmanian climate. So again, folks, this is quite an interesting case. Um, And again, something that's really amazing. You know, this is a creature that has been extinct. You know, off the top of my head, I want to say, It's been labeled extinct uh, by science uh, since the early 1900s. And so, you know, to find the skin of a very rare creature that might help unlock some of its, you know, secrets and some of the mystery of it and potentially enable people to DNA sequence, you know, corpses that may be found in the wild. And people may claim that they're Tasmanian tigers or thylacines. So again, you know, quite an exciting find. Now on to the fourth article, which is which was sent to me from uh, Harry in North Carolina, and again thank you, Harry. Now a lot of you would have heard about that this one um, over the last you know week to ten days, and this one was published on August the thirty-first, and this one is titled "FBI Investigating Pilot's Report of Guy in Jetpack Flying Three Thousand Feet in the Air Near Planes at LAX." The FBI will be investigating an incident that took place near L.A. International Airport after an American Airlines pilot reported seeing a mystery person in a jetpack flying in the path of incoming jets Sunday evening. Now, sorry, folks, this is from Fox 11 L.A., and this was uh, written by Phil Schumann and published on August the 31st. The FBI is aware of the reports by pilots on Sunday and is working to determine what occurred, a spokesperson told Fox 11 on Tuesday. The American Airlines pilot reported reported via radio to the control tower seeing a guy in a jetpack as he was approaching LAX at about 3,000 feet and 10 miles out for a landing. In the video on this story, you can listen to the actual call to the control tower. A second pilot also saw the incident. The plots reporting it, the plots reporting it using visual flight rules, meaning there was plenty of visibility, and it wasn't dark at the time. Based on research, jetpacks can fly that high, but it is pretty uncommon. Yeah, I'll say, you know, generally when I think of this, or I've seen footage of jetpacks, and I'm thinking back to some 1970s videos I remember seeing when I was quite young, you know, they're generally only flying a few hundred feet off the ground. There's an assumption that people with the technical and financial ability to fly at this extreme height and near an airport would also understand the regulations around flying in LAX's flight path. One theory suggests that the incident could be an internet or social media stunt. Look, that makes sense to me. No one has come forward to say they were flying a jetpack, and normally the promotional or fun videos we've seen of them are much lower in the sky aimed at vacationers or thrill seekers who blast off with a pack attached to their backs for a few seconds of low-level flight. Efforts to find out more from the pilot went nowhere and representatives from American Airlines told Fox 11 to contact the FAA. The FAA said they turned the report over to the LAPD for investigation, possibly trying to locate the person via a helicopter or ground patrol. The LAPD says they performed a flyover in the area but were not able to locate anyone that matched the description. Two retired pilots, who currently teach and consult on aviation safety, say they would absolutely believe the pilot in that situation, given their trained eyes and visual awareness. Well, don't tell that to the people who say that pilots aren't good witnesses when UFOs are involved. The pilot estimated the jetpack was only about 300 yards out of his window. For now, it's a mystery on many levels. Some are suggesting it was a mylar balloon or a small helicopter. Years ago, a man in a lawn chair flew aloft and dozens of helium balloons tied to it. All this is very puzzling and potentially dangerous mystery. As you can imagine, the consequences of that kind of mid-air collision. If you have any information related to this story, please call the LAPD. Now, I find it quite humorous myself that, you know, we're talking about how dangerous this is, and yet, on the other hand, the media in general, not all places, but a lot of the media laughs at UFO sightings and say, oh, well, there's nothing to it. And and even if they are there, uh, they don't pose a threat, really. So what would you rather run into, a man on a jetpack or a 20 or 30 or 40 foot, you know, disc flying at obscene speeds that, you know, seems to be fairly impervious to most of what we've got on hand, what do you think colliding with one of those would do to your passenger jet? Again, anyway, that's just the musings of myself. Now, having heard this case, you know, and thanks again, Harry, for sending me the link. I, you know, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, I'm sure I heard of another one. Now, to Adriana in Texas, maybe you already sent this to me. And if you did, I fully apologize for missing missing uh you know including it in this episode. But if not, you know, I did a quick internet search and I found the following case here. And this one uh was from September the second, so, you know, just around the same time as the jetpack in LA, a few days uh, you know, within a few days. And this one is from my essay. so my San And it's titled Four San Antonio Friends Spotted a Mysterious Floating Man they believe was using a jetpack. Logan Puente and his friends Brianna Chacon, Michael O. Butcher, and Ashton Simeon all spotted what they believed was a floating man, rocketing into the air using a jetpack near the Hamilton Wolf Jogging Trail on June 10th at 9.10pm. Puente went to the San Antonio Reddit page soon after, hoping to find others who had seen the same thing. The post generated a healthy amount of interaction, but only one other person, who said they were at the Starbucks on Fredericksburg, said they saw the person too. Accounts of a person flying around the L.A. International Airport wearing a jetpack has caused a buzz this week. But San Antonio had a more under-the-radar situation happen a few months ago. Okay, so it happened a few months ago. Logan Puente and his friends Brianna Chacon, Michael Old Butcher, and Ashton Simeon all spotted what they believe. Okay, so sorry folks, that's just a repeat of what I'd already read. Months later, attention surrounding the Reddit post is skyrocketing again. Puente said he believes it's due to the heightened interest in jetpacks brought on by the recent L.A. incident. There was just this dude flying around, Puente remembered. I initially thought my friend Simeon was joking. He said the flight path lasted about 10 minutes. Puente said he and his group saw the person shoot up in the sky, then lingered at the highest altitude for a few minutes before descending. That does sound like a jetpack to me. Considering their proximity to a graveyard, Puente said his friends thought they had seen some sort of ghostly apparition. We were dumbfounded. We thought we were hallucinating, he added. Puente believes an open field near the San Antonio Medical Foundation is the spot where the mysterious jetpacker was launching from. He plans on returning to see if he can spot him or her again. The witness said he reached out to the city's aviation department, but has not heard back. Meanwhile, in LA, the FBI has launched an investigation into the incident at LAX after multiple pilots reported seeing a man in a jetpack flying near the planes, which is illegal. Well, obviously. Uh, so I'm not going to read every little bit on that, folks, but you know, it's it's just basically following up the LAX incident. Now, look, folks, um, I was discussing this with someone, uh, a friend of the show. Um, who I believe, as I say, may have sent me this article. Now, there was a gentleman in the 1960s or 70s named Carlos Castaneda. Now, he was actually born in Peru. Uh, He wrote a few books, and he's well-known in the kind of esoteric or alternative, you know, consciousness-type communities. And Carlos Castaneda uh, wrote a few books about shamanism. Uh, He claimed to have been a... Apprentice to a shaman or a witch doctor uh, when he spent time in Mexico. And this gentleman was named Don Juan. Now, the interesting bit is you would have heard me play a track on this program before. It's actually a really good track I used to hear on Coast to Coast AM. And it's from Fleetwood Mac. And it's called uh, Hypnotize. And it's basically about mysteries, cryptids. And they basically have a whole verse to the song about you know, these people flying in Mexico with no, you know, no jetpack, no source of outside propulsion, and just flying up and out and in, into the atmosphere and flying around. Now, this is a area of cryptids called flying humanoids, and they have been reported all over the world for quite a long time. And that's the first thing that came to mind when I first heard about this case, um, not so much the one in L.A., because it seems like they pretty much have always known that that was someone on a jetpack. Fascinating nonetheless. Now, Carlos Castaneda is quite a polarizing figure. Uh, He admitted to have taken a lot of hallucinogenics uh, like peyote and jimson weed and others, and some people think of him as a fraud. Uh, He started a bit of an alternate... uh, i don't want to say cult maybe maybe it is a cult i haven't looked into it deep enough to really give you a fair reasoning behind it but definitely he started an alternate group or teaching on kind of you know the basis of reality and everything else so look i'll put a link to that one in the show notes as well Uh, i just wanted to cover that over because it was quite an interesting bit of a tie-in And I'll throw in a link there to Carlos Castaneda's uh, wiki page as well. So you can go over there and have a look if you would like. So that's the news of the dam for this episode. I hope that you've really enjoyed it. Now, folks, I'm going to be covering over one of the most well-known, one of the best documented cases of a USO in ufology. This was the 1967 Shag Harbor UFO case. Now, this happened in Nova Scotia in Canada off the small fishing village of Shag Harbor. It's really a fascinating tale. It's got everything that you could want in a UFO tale. You've got a massive object in the sky. You've got it crashing into the water. You've got the Canadian and U.S. militaries involved. You've got a Russian submarine. You've got debunkers, and at the same time you've got really dogged investigators wanting to get into this. So um, that will be up next folks, and it's really an interesting case. And if you don't know what a USO is, that is a unidentified submerged object versus a flying object. An extraordinary event in 1967 would practically put the small fishing village of Shag Harbor on the map. Located at the southern tip of Nova Scotia, this rural community would be hosts To one of the best documented UFO events of the past 40 years. Named after the shag, a bird of the cormorant family, the harbor was literally left off of most maps of the time, but that would soon be changed once and for all. The tiny fishing community has always had its stories, stories of giant sea serpents, man-eating squid, and ghost ships. The list of local color would see one more addition to this list. A story of a visit of a mysterious flying craft of unknown origin. This craft would visit the waters of Shag Harbor, permanently stamping the village's name in the public eye. Ralph Lowinger was a co-piloting a cargo plane from New York to London that same night, and saw the event unfold from a different perspective. I just happened to be looking in the right direction, and I saw this formation of bluish white lights, slanted from upper left to lower right, and I said, oh watch this guy, he told the room, and the other two in the cockpit looked. I remembered the captain's hands, and my hands both went for the control yoke, because we figured we were going to have to dodge this guy. He's going right at it. And it looked like a big airplane at the time, like a B-52 or a 707, with all of its lights on. There were about five lights, I remember, and he was in a position relative to us of a guy making a left-hand turn, and that would have had him crossing our bow. So we were waiting, and these lights just hung there. They did not cross our bow, and I remember the three of us were looking at it, and we said, What is this? And we couldn't discern what it was. I called Boston and asked if they still had us on radar, and they said, Yeah. And I said, Well, this at 11 o'clock, who is it? He watched the sweep on his radar scope, and he says, I don't have anybody out there. And I said, Well, I'm looking at somebody. At 7.19 p.m., while they watched, there was a sizable silent explosion near the large object followed by another explosion approximately two minutes later, which faded to a blue cloud around the object. The smaller kite tail lights began to dance like fireflies. They followed the light's progress for several minutes as the objects drifted east. While standing at the wheelhouse of his vessel, Captain Leo Howard No Mercy Mersey was looking at four blips on his DECA radar that were stationary. When he looked up about 28 kilometers from the vessel's windows, He could see the four bright objects situated in a roughly rectangular formation. The entire crew of nearly 20 fishermen stood on deck and watched the object in the northeastern sky. Mersey radioed the the Rescue Coordination Center and the Harbor Master in Halifax asking for an explanation and filed a report with the Ludenburg RCMP, or Royal Canadian Mounted Police, outlining his sighting when they arrived into port. The Chronicle Herald and local radio stations reported a glowing object that had been seen by many people who had called the newsroom. They reported witnesses seeing strange glowing objects flying around Halifax at about 10 p.m. Halifax is approximately 300 kilometers northeast from Shag Harbor. The first indication of this mysterious occurrence in Shag Harbor would come from local residents who noticed strange orange lights in the sky on the night of October 4th 1967. Darryl Dory, his sister Annette, and his mother were sitting on their front porch in Mahone Bay when they noticed a large object maneuvering above the southwestern horizon. The next day Darryl wrote a letter to the RCAF, so the Royal Canadian Air Force, Greenwood Base commander, asking what was flying over the water that evening, as he had never seen anything like it. Most witnesses in Shag Harbor agreed that there were four orange lights that evening, five teenagers watched these lights flash in sequence and then suddenly dive in a 45-degree angle towards the water's surface. The witnesses were surprised that the lights did not dive into the water, but seemed to float on top of the water, approximately one-half mile from shore. Witnesses at first thought they were watching a tragic airplane crash and quickly reported as much to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which was located at Barrington Passage. Coincidentally, RCMP Constable Ron Pound had already witnessed the strange lights himself as he drove down Highway 3 en route to Shag Harbor. Pound felt that he was seeing four lights, all attached to one flying craft. He estimated this craft to be about 60 feet long, or 18 meters. Resident and eyewitness Lori Wickens was 18 at the time and has vivid recollections of the mysterious October night. That night Wickens and some teenage friends were driving in a 1956 green and white Pontiac, mesmerized by lights attached to a flying craft in the sky that they were driving parallel to. Wickens estimates the length of what he saw in the sky to have been around 60 feet. He figures it was 1,000 feet off the ground. Wickens and his pals continued to follow the UFO and its bright lights. The lights, he said, would come on in sequence. One, two, three, four. And then they'd all go off for a while, and then again. One, two, three, four. Repeat, repeat. And they weren't the only ones. Other residents, including an off-duty police officer, watched an object with orange-yellow lights go off and on in a sequence. It went across the road in front of us, behind the hill. We couldn't see it. We made it to the top of the hill, says Wickens. There was a light in the water. We went to the phone booth and called the RCMP and reported a plane crash. When I called the RCMP, the first thing he wanted to know was what I was drinking, Wickens said, laughing. So I hung up on him. But then came other phone calls from other residents and and an off-duty RCMP officer. It wasn't long before the RCMP, Coast Guard, and fishing vessels had descended on the scene. In all, 11 separate witnesses contacted the RCMP that evening in the small coastal town of only 400 inhabitants. He, the RCMP officer, had gotten a number for the phone booth. So as I made my way back to my car, the phone booth rang, and he wanted to know where the crash was, and we told him to meet us. So as we were going back there to meet him, we could see this light drifting in the water, and then me and my friend watched the light until it went out, Lori recounted. The fact that there, were never in, there was never any debris found made Wiccan certain it wasn't a plane crash he had witnessed. Wiccan says the bright object appeared to be floating half a mile from shore, leaving a trail of yellow foam that folks watched for nearly an hour before it disappeared. The Canadian Coast Guard and fishing vessels sailed to the area to search for wreckage, but nothing was found. Got no idea what it is, says Wickens. All I know is, we seen something. Wickens still couldn't say with 100% certainty what he and others witnessed that night in Shag Harbor, Shelburne County, on October 4, 1967. And so he sticks with the only logical explanation there is, that it was an unidentified flying object, a UFO, which is how the incident is referred to in the Government of Canada documents. Norman Smith was a teenager in Shag Harbor in 1967. On the night of the incident, he saw the lights in the sky and then followed them until they crashed into the water before his father, his uncle, and he hopped in a fishing boat on an immediate rescue mission. The time of these sightings was stated to have started between 11 and 11.30 p.m. We were looking for people in debris, he said during a witness panel, and we went up to the vicinity of where it was, and we didn't find anything, no piece of material or anything in the water, except for a long streak of foam, yellowish-orange foam, which was four to six inches thick on the water. We searched all night, then the Coast Guard came, and all we did was go back and forth all night long. I was out again the next day. The divers were there, and we stayed there for the better part of the day, and then gave up and went home. We didn't find anything, and the divers didn't find anything that we could see, so we went back home. The foam has also been described as a glittering yellow foam, like shaving cream, 6 centimeters thick in a patch, 25 meters wide and a kilometer long, roiled by bubbling from beneath and smelling of sulfur. I can't tell you what came down or what landed in the water. If it was a plane, or if it was a UFO, I don't know, but there definitely was something that came down out of the sky and landed in the water. I can still see it. I'd like to see it again. I really, really would. But I don't know what it was, and I probably never will. 13-year-old Peter Gorman was tucked into bed in his pajamas on a quiet October night. A fluorescent light pierced through the curtains, luring him to the window. The light slid into place and hovered above the tree line. It was too bright to be a spotlight, too silent to be a helicopter, and too bewildering for him to ever forget. There was no reason for the light to be there. The closest road was nearly a kilometer from Peter's window. He knew the light could be neither a car nor a streetlight, and the moon was slender that October 4th night. A whistling, tumbling sound got louder and louder, describes Peter. Something was free-falling, and I prepared for it to hit my house. Fifteen seconds later, the light shot off, accelerating from zero to about 4,000 kilometers an hour in an instant, according to pilots who say they witnessed it from the air. Remember, this is 1967, says Peter this is not conventional. The response. Constable Pound made his way to the shore to get a closer look at the phenomenal sight. He was accompanied by police corporal Victor Wabecki, Constable Ron O'Brien, and other local residents. Pound clearly saw a yellow light slowly moving on the water, leaving a yellowish foam in its wake. All eyes were glued on the light, as it slowly either moved too distant to be seen or dipped into the icy waters. Other officers who went out to investigate saw the object drift downshore and sink an hour or so later. Coast Guard Cutter No. 101 and other local boats rushed to the spot of the sighting, but by the time they arrived, the light itself had gone. However, the crewmen could still see the yellow foam, indicating that something had possibly submerged. Nothing else could be found that night, and the search was called off at 3 a.m., For days following the incident, the RCMP, the Canadian Coast Guard, the Royal Canadian Navy, and local fishing boats all scoured the the area for survivors or debris, but no trace of anything was ever found. Captain Ronnie Newell was the skipper aboard the Coast Guard Cutter 101. He said they mobilized within 10 minutes of receiving a call from the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax that a plane had went down. We searched that night on the ocean pretty much the whole rest of the night but we didn't see anything he recalled we were back the next morning we brought divers down for two days at that time and they didn't bring up anything that we saw so i can't tell you anything more than that i'm not saying that it wasn't a ufo but it's just that we didn't see anything other than the foam that was on the water but that's all that we did see the rcmp ran a traffic check with the rescue coordination center in halifax And norad radar at becaro nova scotia they were told that there were no missing aircraft reported that evening either civilian or military now that's very important folks please remember that in the midst of the cold war american troops soon arrived with pilots more divers and a massive barge this was reported by another military witness regional newspaper stories did mention a barge with atomic furnaces being brought to shelburne on October 6th for emergency repair, theorized by some as a cover story to explain its presence there. The Report The following day, the Rescue Coordination Center filed a report with Canadian Forces Headquarters in Ottawa. This report stated that something had hit the water in Shag Harbor, but the object was of unknown origin. The HMCS Granby was ordered to the location, where divers searched the bottom of the ocean for several days, but without any positive results. Soon the story of the mysterious crash at Shag Harbor died as quickly as it had begun, that is until 1993. As the original story faded from papers and newscasts, several theories were put forward. One explanation was that a Russian spacecraft had crashed, which would explain the presence of a Russian submarine in the area. There was also the rumor of American involvement in the follow-up investigation, but there was no official statement from the U.S. On October 9th, Five days after the mysterious object sank off the shoreline and into the abyss, the UFO search had been called off. After extensive efforts turned up nothing, of course, some will argue that evidence could have been found and was concealed from the public eye, which is somewhat plausible, especially when one considers the fact that there was a secret U.S. military base monitoring subterranean and underwater frequencies for Russian submarine activity only 30 minutes away from the crash site. One of the panelists at the 50th anniversary festival was Bill Boudreau, who worked at the secret base, which was disguised as an oceanographic institute for 25 years. The facility used underwater microphones and magnetic detection devices to track enemy submarines, but its true purpose wasn't revealed until the 1980s. They picked up the crash here in the harbor almost as soon as it happened, he alleged during the witness testimonies. It's no wonder conspiracy theorists like to have a heyday with this particular UFO event because, quite frankly, there does seem to be a lot of ammo, Bill said. Diver David Kivet, another panelist at the festival, has been surveying the ocean floor of the harbor for years and claimed he's discovered underwater anomalies or depressions in the area where the crash is said to have taken place. The point of these dive expeditions is to figure out what these anomalies are. It may or may not support the Shag Harbor incident, but that's not the point, Kivet told the room. The fact is that these anomalies do physically exist. Givet described the depression as a dinner plate, with the center being about a foot deep. It was perfectly round, he said, a perfect circle. And the covering of this depression was comprised of pebbles two to four centimeters in size. So where are the big rocks? Where are the plants? Where Where are the scallops, the lobsters, the silt? There was nothing. It was absolutely clear, like someone had swept it the day before. Norman Brown tells his own story of a peculiar sighting he encountered when he was 18 years old on Compello Island, just 200 kilometers across the Bay of Fundy, the same first week of October 1967. That same night on October 4th, or it may have been the night before or a night or two after, it sounds very much exactly like the spacecraft or UFO that we saw. I firmly believe it was either the same craft or if there was more than one, it was one that was with them at the time. I have no idea what was manning it or where it was from, but I can tell you that it was no kind of spacecraft that the Canadian or US Navy or Air Force could have had at the time. There was no sound. It was pitch black. It glowed just a bit. Nothing could just hover as steady as that was. It was stationary and you could see it very clear. It was just over the top of the trees, maybe a couple of hundred feet in the air on a little bit of an angle and then all of a sudden it just took off with incredible speed. And as it got going, you could see the lights getting smaller and smaller and smaller and then gone. Brown, who admitted that before his encounter, he did not believe in spaceship sightings said he hasn't seen anything like that since. When I heard stories of people seeing stuff like this in the sixties, I thought, no way you're crazy, man. You're making it up. He said, but when I saw it myself from that point on, I knew that these stories had to be true because I saw it myself, and I knew it wasn't something from this earth. It caused hysteria in the surrounding villages because it was the height of the Cold War, says Gorman of the town's 1967 crash. People thought it was a military aircraft. It could have been radiation. It could have been anything, and we weren't getting any answers. People were frantic. The aftermath. While the official story of the incident ends here, Further evidence attributed to various military and civilian witnesses might imply a highly secretive military search involving a small flotilla of U.S. and Canadian ships about 30 miles to the northeast of Shag Harbor near Shelburne, site of a top-secret submarine detection base. According to one military witness, he was allegedly briefed that the object had originally been picked up on radar coming out of Siberia. Most of the credit for the investigations is owed to Chris Stiles of MUFON, The case intrigued Stiles so much that he decided to search for more details. Stiles found the name of many of the original witnesses through newspaper clippings and was able to interview many of them. Stiles was assisted by MUFON investigator Doug Doug Ledger. These two men would uncover some extremely compelling evidence through their interviews. They discovered that when the divers of the Granby finished their work, the case was not over after all. The divers, along with other witnesses, related the following events. The object that dove into the waters of the harbor had soon left the Shag area, traveling underwater for about 25 miles to a place called Government Point, which was near the submarine detection base. The object was spotted on sonar there, and naval vessels were positioned over it. After a couple of days, the military was planning a salvage operation when a second UFO joined the first. Common belief at the time was that the second craft had arrived to render aid to the first. One witness, an American diver, claims pictures of the object were taken and foam-like material was recovered. But none of the testimony has been corroborated by any official government reports, and no known RCMP reports on the Shag Harbor incident remain, and no survivor or traces of the object were ever officially recovered. Although, according to the fisherman, he also saw divers bringing up aluminum-covered metal. At this time, the Navy decided to wait and watch. After about a week of monitoring the two UFOs, some of the vessels were called to investigate a Russian submarine which had entered Canadian waters. At this point, the two underwater craft made their move. They made their way to the Gulf of Maine and putting distance between themselves and the chasing navy boats, they broke the surface and shot away into the skies. These extraordinary events were corroborated by many witnesses, both civilian and military. Unfortunately, these reports were given off the record. Ex-military personnel feared the loss of their pensions and civilian witnesses feared ridicule and their privacy being invaded. The unusual events of Shag Harbor command an important place in the study of UFOs. There is little doubt that something unknown crashed into the waters of Shag Harbor on October 4, 1967. The incident, referred to as an unidentified flying object by the federal government of Canada, sparked a slew of reports articles, and conspiracy theories over the years. So much interest remains for the case that the Royal Canadian Mint released a coin commemorating the Shag Harbor UFO incident, quickly selling out online. The credibility of witnesses is just amazing for this, says Royal Canadian Mint project manager Krista Bruce. We have witnesses from the military. We have pilots who were witnesses to the event, local RCMP officers and residents like Laurie and his friends. So it was a great story to tell. The paper trail. The Shag Harbor reports received extensive front page coverage in the Halifax Chronicle Herald. The paper ran a headline story on October 7th titled, Could Be Something Concrete in Shag Harbor UFO, RCAF, or Royal Canadian Air Force. The article by Ray McLeod included witness descriptions of an alleged object and crash, the Air Force's search and rescue effort, and the Navy's underwater search that was underway, including three additional divers from Fleet Diving Unit Atlantic. The head of the Air Force's air desk in Ottawa, Squadron Leader Bain, who recommended the Navy undertake an underwater search, was also quoted, saying the Air Force was, quote, very interested, unquote, in the matter. We get hundreds of reports every week, but the Shag Harbor incident is one of the few where we may get something concrete. The article also mentioned ufo reports that immediately preceded the incident including one from a woman in halifax around 10 pm the chronicle herald ran another story on october 9th titled ufo search called off stating that the navy had ended an extensive underwater search for the mysterious unidentified flying object that disappeared into the ocean here wednesday night as to what was found the navy stated not a trace not a clue not a bit of anything the story of the search being called off for an alleged mysterious dark dark object was carried by the Canadian press and other networks. In a series of RCMP reports and correspondence sent by Telex between military officials in Ottawa and Halifax, there were specific references to unidentified flying objects and no attempts were made to explain away what people were reporting. About 36 hours after the initial sightings, several Defense Department officials signed off on a memo that made it clear authorities had no idea what they were dealing with. A preliminary investigation has been carried out by the Rescue Coordination Center in Halifax, the memo says. It has been determined that this UFO sighting was not caused by a flare, float, aircraft, or in fact any known object. Nobody reported a UFO. Everybody reported a plane crash. That gives this a boost of credibility. The Condon Committee. Now this is an overview from Wikipedia. The Condon Committee was the informal name of the University of Colorado UFO Project, a group funded by the US Air Force from 1966 to 1968 at the University of Colorado to study unidentified flying objects under the direction of physicist Edward Condon. The result of its work, formerly titled Scientific Study of Unidentified Flying Objects and known as the Condon Report, appeared in 1968. After examining hundreds of UFO files from the Air Force's Project Blue Book and from the civilian UFO groups, National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, and the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, and investigating sightings reported during the life of the project the committee produced a final report that said the study of UFOs was unlikely to yield major scientific discoveries. The report's conclusions received a mixed reception from scientists and academic journals. The report has been cited as a decisive factor in the general low level of interest in UFO activity among academics ever since that time. So basically, folks, they said nothing to see here. There's nothing much to this and It's a waste of time investigating UFOs. So, you know, don't bother. And basically, from that day on, the scientific community has really taken that skeptical outlook that it's the planet Venus, Swamp Gas, Hillbilly Moonshine, Aurora Borealis, you name it. The Shag Harbor crash happened at the same time that the so-called Condon Committee UFO investigation was underway. A summary of the case was provided in the final report as Case 34, North Atlantic, Fall 1967. It was stated that their investigation consisted of a few phone calls to sources in the area. The concluding remarks were, no further investigation by the project was considered justifiable, particularly in view of the immediate and thorough search that had been carried out by the RCMP and the Marine Command. After noting that no aircraft had been reported missing, no alternative explanation was offered. The case is therefore considered one of the unsolved cases in the Condon Report. So folks, quite interesting. Now what are the theories around what happened on that chilly October night in Nova Scotia? So the first and most prevalent theory that you will see that's been put forward is that it was a top secret American or Russian military plane that crashed into the harbor. Now, I do find it quite interesting that it's been over 50 years since this case happened. In fact, 53, and it's never been declassified if this was a secret military plane. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but I do find it highly suspicious. What was so secret that you can't declassify it after 53 years? Another theory is that it was a crashed Russian spacecraft, and a lot of that theory goes along the fact that the Russian submarine showed up in the water near the crash site. Now, there's been no official word from the Canadian or U.S. government saying that this submarine actually showed up. So, you know, people are basically using a claim by one of the divers and some of the military staff that said that this Russian submarine turned up and they're basically trying to use that to debunk the entire case, which I do find quite interesting because if you throw out the witness testimony and say, oh, well, none of these people will go on the record, then you must by, by uh, the same grouping, throw out the submarine that was supposedly in the area. So that one I find quite interesting. Now, is it impossible? No. But again, why have we never heard of this, this Russian spacecraft And, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union, the last time I checked, was about, you know, 30 years ago. So why haven't we found out? Now, I've also heard people talk about airplane crashes. Well, again, as I said, you know, remember this fact. The RCMP looked into this. There were no missing aircraft. So short of it being a time slip or something like that, I really struggled to find out where this air crash, you know, where this aircraft crash occurred there have also been speculation that it was St. Elmo's fire or ball lightning. Again, it doesn't explain it crashing into the sea. I've been around ball lightning. I've seen it myself, one-on-one when I was young. And it's definitely not something that you would equate with a 60-foot large craft, you know. I'm not saying it's impossible, but again, it's, it's just very strange to me. And again, there's flares, military flares, which has basically been disproven. And everyone's favorite, meteorites. It seems like everything is a meteorite, or a meteorite in conjunction with other things. I understand that meteorites and space debris are the vast majority of unexplained objects that crash into the Earth. But I just don't see this. If there was a meteor shower, it definitely would have been you know, discovered by now because these are the things that astronomers follow quite closely. Meteor showers don't just happen on an isolated, you know, area of the Canadian coastline, uh, you know, out of the blue meteor showers happen, you know, at certain times and in certain places. And it's definitely, you know, something that is well-documented. It doesn't just occur out of the blue, maybe in, I don't know, a thousand years ago, but not in 1967. Now, I do have one thing that I want to say about Shag Harbor and this area in general. Now, I can't speak for all of you listeners, but I've grown up in small towns, and I've lived in and around them. And I've also been around fishermen, and the vast majority of the working people in this area were fishermen. Fishermen are not the types that are going to do anything or say anything that will alienate them from other fishermen. And people in small towns do not go out on a limb and talk about things like UFOs, cryptids, ghosts, for fear of ridicule. Now, you might say to yourself, oh well, what does that matter? But again, picture yourself in this small seaside fishing village. It's 1967. There's no internet. So, you know, you're not going to get online and be friends with other people. There's very few jobs and you're quite isolated. So, if people in the town are saying you're insane and you know you see you know you see things in the sky, you must be an alcoholic or you mu- must be hallucinating, it's not something that is going to go well for you and your family. And this is why so many people keep these things secret. The worldview of now is much different than the worldview back at that time. Now, I wasn't alive, but I can tell you when I was young, people looked at you quite sideways if you talked about UFOs and seeing things in the skies. They generally thought that, you know, you were either imagining it, you were crazy, or you drank too much, or you were hallucinating, you know, doing some type of illicit drug. So, folks, what are we left with here? Was it a secret U.S. craft of some sort that crashed into the harbor? Was it a Russian spacecraft? I do find it quite interesting that one of these purported stories talks about tracking this craft coming in from Siberia. Maybe this explains why the Russian submarine was in the area. Maybe the Russians had also tracked it, and we're trying to find out where it went. Again, this is at the height of the Cold War, and there is the very real possibility that, you know, if this would have been in a less guarded area, the Russians may have turned up in a bit more force than a submarine prodding around, but this whole area of the Canadian coastline, was one of the most monitored and well-defended areas of Canada and the U.S. So I'm not surprised at all that a submarine, if it did turn up, up, very quickly would have headed the other way when they would have had the Royal Navy and the U.S. Navy turn up to find out why it was there. So again, you know, like I say, what are we left with? Could be a meteorite, maybe. Could be a lot of things, folks. As always, I leave the decision making up to you. It is one of the most fascinating cases that you'll hear about. It's one of the most well documented. It's the only case that I know that a government on record went on and, you know, said that this was a UFO. It was unexplained. It wasn't one of our planes. It wasn't a passenger plane that crashed. And again, USOs in and of themselves are a fascinating topic. I'll be covering more of them as time goes on. There are cases all over the world, especially of the military being pursued by these craft in and out of the water and having them interact with aircraft and surface ships and submarines. So it's definitely something interesting, folks. It does make you wonder if there isn't something under those waves that we don't know about. So, with that, folks, I hope that you've enjoyed this program. I hope that you've enjoyed Shag Harbor and as always don't let my words be the final judgment on these cases. Do your own research, look it up online, go and look on YouTube. There's a lot of fascinating material out there. Now the next topic, the next uh, subject for the next show I believe will be the Brown Mountain Lights for my friend Harry and Lisa in North Carolina and uh, it's, it's very fascinating. For those of you who have heard about these earth lights all over the world, I'll be covering this over. So with that, folks, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell, which is, a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which does reside within may not be reached. Take care, folks, and I'll talk to you soon.